What can be said about meditation that has not been said in countless books, podcasts and seminars? In context of magic, maybe we can view it as a psychotechnology, maybe the prime psychotechnique. Indeed, without meditation, every magical endeavor seems futile. There simply is no magic without meditation. While there is a convergence of magic with other spiritual traditions in the sense that the overall goal is some form of enlightenment, the means and the framing of meditation is somewhat different. While it's not solely about detachment and learning indifference about the automatic processes of the psyche, there's also the element of priming the psyche to the emergence of phenomena like ecstasy and concentration. Only by domestication of these two very complex and difficult to achieve psychological phenomena, there is no magic. Meditation, used and understand in our context, is a very phallic endeavor. Concentration and ecstasy are two manifestations of intensity. And only by way of intensity we are able to change the mycelia-like pathways and rhizomes of our mind. That is, the pathways we inhabit by which we explore and move through the world. The rhizome is the perfect analogy of the mind. Cave-like structures or attractors that are interconnected through pathways. Much like the archaeological and architectural underground structure of Elengubu in Turkey, built roughly 2,000 years ago. Like there, the rhizomes of our mind enable us to enter different attractor basins and experience different realities. If we want to change this rhizomatic structure of the psyche, the landscape of pathways between attractors, we can only do this by effort and intensity. These pathways are only there and somewhat stable because we form them via intensity and constant use in the first place. The emotional states and moods, the perspectives that we take in daily conversations, the goals that we are forming, are the results of the rhizome-like pathways that we created. If we want to change them, we need the focus and energy to do it. Hence, elevated states of concentration and ecstasy. How does that look like? In order to answer this, we must ask, what is awareness? this much-used word. I don't want to give a definition, but rather some examples of when we encounter awareness and how that relates to our topic. So imagine you will suspend some movement patterns for a month, say the habit of putting a leg over the other when sitting down. You probably would imagine this is a sometimes difficult but in the end doable thing. You just need to establish a continued awareness of what you are doing when sitting down. You need to monitor your behavior. Now imagine doing the same with language and reframe for a month from words like I, me or mine. That is all personal pronouns. Here it gets very interesting. The awareness has to be more complete, more intense, more continuous. Well, you can easily condition yourself not crossing your legs while sitting down and don't care for the rest of the time because you're, say, walking. We do talk all the day through, so we need better strategies of not using personal pronouns. There is, like with all or at least most psychological and spiritual techniques, a trick to that matter. The problem is easily solved just by deciding that the conversation partner is inconceivably more interesting to you than you yourself. 
You become more attentive, you start to listen and your inquiring questions find no end. You start with some childlike wonder to explore the other person's world. In other words, you find no interest in talking about yourself. And in doing that, after, let's say, four weeks, a deep and profound spiritual realization happens. But what you are in fact doing is, you are changing the rhizomatic pathways of your daily routines and that in a substantial manner. A third example on awareness, now think about not using personal pronouns while thinking. You're not thinking I, me, mine for a month. If not already in the exercise before, it becomes apparent now that the solution to the task is not to suppress anything. Because the more you are suppressing thoughts, the more they are popping up in another place. Indeed, the only way to solve this task is to try to engage in a different way of cognition. The point of this example exercise is not to claim that this is actually possible. The point here is to try anyway and observe, as under a magnifying glass, how psyche or attention awareness actually operates. It gives valuable insights into the machinery of mind and any endeavors in meditation will benefit from it. So what is concentration? It is an elevated state of awareness of the kind we are not socially conditioned to. We learn some form of attention through the education system. Concentration is not part of that. Too strange are its parameters. There's indeed something strange happening if you are able to hold a mantra or yantra in your mind for 90 minutes straight without any internal disruptions. They certainly may arise, but they don't interrupt the stream of attention unto the object. Then something utterly new happens, as if unto you. A new gestalt of attention emerges, out of your control. The object of attention, the stream of attention, and most strange of all, the subject of attention, the meditating self, they've all fuse into one. All internal noises and thoughts cease. For a moment, and this moment is daringly shocking, with this emerging new form of concentration, the first true form of ecstasy stirs up your being, and you're liberated from all earthly bounds. In a way it's that easy, and in a way it's that hard. But this form of cognitive and emotional intensity, that is, concentration and ecstasy, unnecessary to even begin with magic. There are obviously some very interesting phenomena emerging right at the outset. Why is it that the deeper the attention is, the older the arising images, memories and feelings become? Obviously, newer experiences and processes are built on top of older processes. They become integrated whilst the older processes still persist. But if you cut through your internal processing by uh, vehemently and vigorously focusing on one object, one throws an anchor in the depth of the abyss which is yourself. Indeed, the shocking realization of concentration is that there is no self as a distinct unit somewhere to be found. It just processes and turtles all the way down. Turtles being mental processes and patterns of thoughts and feelings. Meditation therefore begins where the majority of practitioners stop. I'm not the first one to point this out. With concentration, a new way of being in the world arises. A unity of what was separate before. Object of concentration, attention, intention, and the subject who meditates. 
Concentration is nothing else than a cognitive flow state onto an object, which is made difficult and possible by the fact that there is nothing more boring than the meditation object. The results of this depth of concentration are astonishing, especially in daily life. Since we are normally not conditioned to these kinds of attention and focusing our mind, our daily life shifts profoundly compared to what we are able to achieve before. A good meditation always has fundamental effects on daily life and the way we conduct ourselves. Indeed, a more clear, focused and intense acting is the proof of a good meditation. This is because in life as in meditation you use the same cognitive processes and if you are more focused in one area of life you will certainly be in the other one too. The practitioner is able to change the rhizomatic pathways and thereby his way of constructing and experiencing the psychological substructure of his lived-in world, his Lebenswelt. The long meditation is justifiably understood as the appropriate technique not only to increase anti-fragility to chaos, and not just resilient to it, but grow in strength by being exposed to it, but also to encourage a willingness to self-sacrifice. Gradually, with sufficient will and love, the shells of the personality and the autopoetic self-generating operations that update the ego and self may fall off due to the factors of concentration, time, pain and deprivation. The psyche, trapped in the circles of its own self-updating, is thus forced to solve those internal behavioral programs which may be functional in dealing with the everyday world but which provide hardly any suitable approaches for dealing with pain and deprivation. Especially in these long meditation expeditions, resources become free, which were otherwise being used up in everyday processing. This liberation of attention and the internal resources creates a creative tension that assists with the push towards transformation. The longer the meditation lasts, the more the intensity increases. The only solution to bind the pain and the experience of chaos that occurs as energy is freed up in and for the inner expedition is the sacrifice of what until then tried to resist the pain and the chaos, that is, the experiencing self itself. Spiritual practice essentially consists in forcing this self-sacrifice. Temporary knowledge may emerge that nobody is at home that identity is an illusion created by a network of cognitive habits and operations. This is where maybe the daemon may emerge. Another insight is that what remains after the self-identification is deconstructed is a somehow formless witness who, like an overtone, is strangely liberated from the autopoetic processes and yet can observe them. This detachment from the self is often described as an experience of both unity and ecstasy, samadhi in the Hindu context, by removing the boundaries between self, world and chaos. Especially the separation of and demarcation between self and world is of importance here, because it has been shown by developmental psychologists that this demarcation is created relatively early in the course of the development of the psyche in infancy. It is thus the boundary that is, so to speak, generated within the psyche itself, as a representation of the physical boundary of the organism to its environment. The border is a symbolic representation of the psychological border to the world, and as such it can also be deconstructed again. 
It is one of the least understood aspects of meditation that the attainment of those sublime states such as samadhi is not only transpersonal but also requires a deep immersion in the pre-personal realms of the psyche, making possible a kind of symbiosis of the highest and the lowest. Without a structural deconstruction of the demarcations or distinctions between inwardness and outwardness, between ego and world, transpersonal states cannot arise. As one must ask, why should anyone experience a form of oceanic henosis? If the pre-personal experience of the oceanic unity with the mother and before any cognitive demarcations were made were not reactivated. But to deconstruct such cognitive distinctions, one needs a complex awareness of the self-actualizing operations of the psyche itself. Hence, synthesis of highest and lowest levels of the psyche. Here we can see why meditation and contemplative prayer have proven themselves over the last centuries as techniques for entering into the navigation process of consciousness, since chaos and crisis appear to an observer in any case only as psychological phenomena. The confrontation with chaos during meditation takes away from the observer any danger that the future can bring. In a pre-rational, animistic language of the shamans, we could say one becomes invulnerable, immortal, because he has immunized himself against chaos by absorbing it. Through the trained self-sacrifice, the ability is attained to give up old behaviors and to form new behaviors in everyday life. This is a very serious evolutionary advantage. What applies to all true mystical, shamanic, religious and spiritual techniques also applies to meditation, namely that it can unfold its true potential only through complete self-sacrifice and the struggle with chaos. Meditation as a spiritual core technique can fulfill its potential if it is used in a way that does not wince in the face of chaos. Meditation begins if the safe places of normal day-to-day -day cognition and experience are left behind and the individual begins to face the forces of chaos and complexity, namely when pain, be it physical or emotional, begins to disturb the practice of concentration. The breakdown of the common and normal ways of thinking, feeling, remembering is a starting off point for meditation. And out of this breakup of these structures emerges intensity and ecstasy. And the more structures that are left behind, the more the individual can experience deeper states of meditation. Meditation begins in that very moment when we start to crave to end it because the regular autopoetic circles of our cognition want to stabilize themselves but are facing termination. Will, in meditation, begins when this inertia is being voluntarily disrupted, when the circular day-to-day -day thinking is disrupted, through which we reactualize our notions and experiences of self and world. Or, to put it differently, when we stop creating the stories we internally telling ourselves constantly. But the important thing here is the safe and comfortable states of mind are left behind. That might happen after five minutes or five hours. The self-identification as someone who meditates must cease to exist. 
Even the experience of non-duality is secondary to the sheer exertion of will in meditation, because without it, nothing will follow. Because of this, the constant deconstruction of the autopoietic construction of internal and external reality of psyche is the normative goal of meditation. That means that meditation is successful when the processes and structures of identification are being left behind and deconstructed, when the subjective sense of self and world has been abandoned, when chaos has been integrated. In this regard, it does not make any difference which meditation technique is used to accomplish that, and personal temperament may be the deciding factor. But if in doubt, ecstasy will be the sign of disentanglement and freedom while doing the meditation, as well as a renewed motivation afterwards to be and act in the world again. There is a question arising. Why and to what end should something like meditation as a technique emerge or develop historically in the first place. It doesn't seem necessary at first sight and could be seen as a self-indulgent luxury or evolutionary access. We might even ask if it's possible that human culture would have developed over the course of millennia the same way without this tendency to go inwards, to observe interiority, to contemplate and meditate. Yet all these different practices have presumably accompanied humankind since the dawn of time, or at least since the emergence of a more complex self-aware consciousness and traditional religion. But why? The most obvious answer would be that they offer an evolutionary advantage to those who practice them. Otherwise, those techniques never would have been handed down the millennia. The volitional confrontation of chaos and the reduction of a fear of it must not only lead to a higher cognitive complexity because ever more complex cognitive structures will develop, but must have broadened the possibilities in the social domains. We have to imagine the initial situation of turning attention inwards as a protoform of meditation and how the interior space must have appeared to the pre-modern or even prehistoric individual who had no words, terms, notions or concepts to distinguish internal phenomena and processes that we today use in passing. That interior space must have appeared to the awakening self-observer not only as complex but as ineffable. What could that first ascetic, closing his eyes for the first time some five or even ten or twenty thousand years ago, even discern? He didn't have categories or concepts like feelings, emotions, thoughts, internal voices or self, etc. What did he perceive internally except oceanic waves to be hurled to and fro by psychological forces which he could not understand at all? Yes, could he even understand himself as somebody who experienced and witnessed all of that, doubtfully? Perhaps he was just vanished for a moment within that interior complexity, thereby enabling the first experience of ecstasy and henosis. Maybe the development of a quasi-witness or as a self-locating subject to experience that swaying was something that developed much later. That would be Julian James' argument. No wonder that that witness, as it appears in Buddhist noetic, signified an extraordinary state which has to be developed over years, 
the experience of the self-reflective and self-experiencing individual had to be developed. This is the evolutionary function and usefulness of meditation. And since we are only scratching the surface of our subconscious, just culturally starting to delve into that very ocean, meditation will prove itself as the sublime technique to discover the undiscovered country of our soul for the centuries to come.